Well, we are making our way through the gospel according to John. The life story of Jesus according to John, who was one of Jesus' best friends, the disciple who Jesus loved. Uh, John is a unique gospel in that it gives us many stories and details that are omitted from the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It, it is a profoundly beautiful gospel because it shows us the depth of God's love for us in the person of his son, Jesus. And so with that in mind, we're going to give our attention to the reading of God's word, John 13. We're going to start in verse 18, and we're going to read all the way down to verse 35. This is God's word. John 13, starting in verse 18 and reading through verse 35. Jesus said, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that, that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment. I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is God's word. Let's go to him now in prayer. O oh Lord our God, as we enter by your Spirit into the upper room with the apostles, I pray, Lord, that you would show us your glory, that you, would, that you would convict us of sin, that darkness in our hearts, 
And I pray, Lord, that you would give us the light of forgiveness and grace and mercy and salvation by your Spirit. We ask, Lord God, that you would illuminate us through your Spirit. Show us Christ, for we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In every life, there are ups and downs. There are peaks and valleys. There are good days and bad days. There are good years and bad years. As Kohelet, the writer of Ecclesiastes, put it, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Sometimes we feel like black and white Dorothy in Kansas, and sometimes we feel like Technicolor Dorothy in the land of Oz. Sometimes life is smooth sailing, and sometimes we feel like we are caught in the perfect storm. Sometimes we, we, everything seems to come together, and at other times, everything seems to be falling apart. So my question for you is, what's happening in this scene? Is everything coming together? Or is everything falling apart? Is this a light scene? Or is this a dark scene? If the director of The Chosen came to you and said, We have an emergency. My lighting director quit. He resigned this morning. I need you to light this scene. How would you light it? Would you light it with bright technicolor, uh, glorious colors, rich saturation, or would you light it in very subtle, quiet, muted tones? Would you shroud the room in darkness? Now, on the surface, this looks like one of the darkest days in the life of of Jesus. This is the night that Jesus was betrayed. This is the very moment where Satan himself enters into Judas, one of the 12 apostles. You can almost feel the tension in the room as Jesus leans over to Judas and says to him, "What you are about to do, do quickly." I think that that, G, that John felt the darkness, which is why he added the little detail, and it was night. For Jesus, this was the darkest night of his soul. A singular event in a series of events that would culminate in the brutal death, the crucifixion of Jesus, the Son of God, the most Horrific death in the history of the world. A a, a death in which the sun itself refused to shine. And yet, if you look more closely, you can see tiny beams of light piercing the darkness of the upper room. In this scene, Jesus shines the light of hope. He shows us that God is For us and not against us. He shows us that God is both glorious and good. He speaks to us about prayer and perseverance. He speaks to us indirectly about our adoption and directly about his love. God's love for us 
and consequently our love for one another in the church. Verse 31, when Judas Iscariot had gone out, when the darkness had left the room, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him at once. You can almost hear echoes of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. This scene reminds us that ultimately the darkness cannot overcome the light. That's true because Jesus, who is the light of the world, stepped down into darkness so that we could step up into the light of his glory and grace. A bright, blue, technicolor world. A world where we know who we are because we know who he is. The good news of the gospel is that his worst day has become our best day. And his darkness has become our light. As we sing, we are forgiven because he was forsaken. We are accepted because he was condemned. As Christians, we don't understand the light by looking to the darkness. We understand the darkness by looking into the light. Now, here's why this is so important. Often, when we find ourselves in a dark place, and all of us find ourselves in a dark place from time to time, we look around and we say, where is God in any of this? Why would God allow this to happen? Why would God allow this to happen to me? Either he's unwilling to turn the lights on or he's unable to turn the lights on. He's either unwilling to help me or he's unable to help me. In the darkness, some of us question God's goodness and others question God's greatness. Some of us when the darkness is particularly dark, can question both at the same time. Now, the secular response to darkness is despair. Curse God and die. There is no meaning in life. There is no purpose. All we are is dust in the wind. Stuff happens. Move on. There's no reason or purpose to any of this. Despair. The religious response is often denial. Well, it's not so bad. You know, it's always darkest before the dawn. Uh, do more, try harder. God helps those who help themselves. Just cheer up, be happy, smile, and everything will work out in the end. What's the Christian response? How do we, as children of the light, live as children of the light, in, a, in an often dark and chaotic world. How does Jesus help us both acknowledge and overcome the darkness? How does he do it? Well, this morning, this passage gives us a Christian answer to both secularism and legalism. This passage shows us that we can find God in the darkness. And more significantly, God can find us 
in the darkness. And because our God can and did find us in the darkness, there's hope. This morning we return once again to the Upper Room Discourse, which is essentially a five-chapter discipleship boot camp in where Jesus prepares 12 of his closest followers for war. Not a conventional war, but a spiritual war. A war in which we, as his disciples, do battle against Satan and all the armies of darkness. In this war, we are not armed with conventional weapons, rifles and tanks and missiles. We're armed with spiritual weapons. Ephesians 6.11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. This week we see that in every war, there are traitors. There are double agents. There are turncoats. There are people like Benedict Arnold. There are people like Judas Iscariot. How do we fight back against them? How do we, as children of the light, fight back against the armies of darkness? These are some of the questions we'll be asking ourselves this morning as we look at the betrayal of Jesus Christ at the hands of Judas Iscariot. I have one big idea, one central premise this morning, and we'll unpack it through the rest of the sermon. Here it is. Jesus stepped down into our darkness so that we might step up into his light. As we make our way through that, first we're going to talk about the darkness, and then second, we're going to talk about the light. Are you ready? Allow me to enlighten you. Pun intended. My dad joke game is strong. All right, let's take a closer look. We begin with the darkness. How did Jesus step down into our darkness? Well, I think that we see the darkness of this fallen world in three things that happened to Jesus in the upper room. First, he was betrayed. Second, he was misunderstood. And third, he was attacked. So he was betrayed, misunderstood, and then attacked. Now, the first thing we see is betrayal. In the upper room, Jesus stepped down into the darkness in the sense that he was betrayed. Verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, if you're a Christian, I'm sure you know all about Judas Iscariot. He is the villain in the story. If you know anything at all about the Bible, you know that he was the worst of the worst because he betrayed Jesus. He's every bad guy in every movie that you've ever seen all rolled into one. Darth Vader, Lord Voldemort, uh, Principal Ed Rooney from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. He's just a horrible person. There's almost nothing redeemable about Judas Iscariot. Now, what you might not know is that before he was the bad guy, Judas Iscariot was one of the good guys. He was one of Jesus' most trusted apostles. 
Now, Judas Iscariot was obviously trusted by the other apostles because they put him in charge of handling the money. In verse 29, we're told Judas had the money bag. That's why when he left, the other apostles assumed that Jesus had sent him off to maybe buy something or to give something to the poor because he was essentially the treasurer of the group. Now, you've probably heard the phrase, trusted financial advisor. That was Judas Iscariot. He was the the chairman of the church finance committee. He was one of the guys who who counted the money on Monday morning from the offerings that are put in the plate on Sunday morning. He signed the checks. You get the idea. Now, here's the question. Have you ever been betrayed like Jesus was betrayed? Have you ever had dealings with a, a shady advisor, someone who's incompetent, someone who cost you thousands and thousands, if not tens or, or even hundreds of thousands of dollars? Has anyone you've ever trusted stolen from you? It's happened to me. And more importantly, it happened to Jesus. He was betrayed by someone he trusted a great deal. Remember that John told us about Judas Iscariot all the way back in chapter 12, right after Mary anointed Jesus with her very expensive perfume. We read this, John 12, verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was about to betray him, there's that word again, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And then John notes, he said this, Not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus was a thief. He had been betraying Jesus for months, if not years, by this point in the story. Now, it's bad enough when a stranger or a business, business colleague or, or maybe a client that you have betrays us, defrauds us, files a, 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 a frivolous lawsuit against us, in some way cheats us. It's worse when that betrayer is not merely a colleague, but a friend. Remember, again, it's, it almost sounds crazy to say this because Ju- Judas Iscariot has become almost a cartoon uh, villain in the history of Christian theology. But before this happened, Judas and Jesus were friends. Remember that when Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus, we're going to read that story in the next chapters. When he betrayed Jesus, he betrayed him with a kiss. In the ancient Near East, that was the way two friends would greet one another. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and Romans 16, the Apostle Paul says in passing, greet one another with a holy kiss. You people who go to church together, who worship together, who are friends in community with one another, greet one another by showing intimacy and friendship and trust and respect That's still the way it is in many cultures today. People would greet one another with a kiss. Here's the question. Have you ever been betrayed with a kiss? Have you ever been betrayed by a friend? I have had friends stab me in the back and throw me under the bus 
and then stabbed me in the front, and then backed the bus up so they could roll over me uh, one other time. It happens. I'm sure you had that happen to you. Some of you have been betrayed by maybe a husband or a wife. You picked up your husband's phones and you read some messages that you were not supposed to see. You checked your wife's email. You found some emails that were never intended for you to see. And you discovered that your spouse, this person who you love, has been betraying you. I know some of you who are students have been betrayed by other students at school. One day you go to school only to discover that one of your friends, air quotes, is no longer your friend. And they've been talking about you behind your back and gossiping about you and slandering you, telling lies, spreading rumors. You never saw it coming. Completely blindsided because you thought that this person was one of your closest friends. How, how could she do that to me? Why would God... Let that happen. It's horrible. It's painful. And it happened to Jesus. Jesus stepped down into the darkness of betrayal. Now the second thing Jesus experienced is misunderstanding. Jesus was misunderstood. Verse 22. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. Verse 25, so that disciple, John, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Verse 28, now no one at the table knew why he said this to them. Now, as I was thinking about this, I almost hesitated to use the word misunderstanding because the word misunderstanding conveys the idea of wrong understanding. Here, the apostles didn't seem to have a wrong understanding of what Jesus said. They seemed to have no understanding of what Jesus said. What's Jesus talking about? Who's going to betray us? What is this betrayal talk? John, ask him what he means. Is it it doubting Thomas? I bet it's doubting Thomas. He always seemed a little bit shifty to me. Which one of these guys is going to betray us? But here's why I think that is the right word. I think the disciples misunderstood Jesus in the sense that they were confused because they didn't think anyone was going to betray Jesus. Remember, moments ago in the timeline of this story, the disciples were having an argument around the table. And their argument was essentially, which one of us is going to be greatest in the kingdom of God? When Jesus is inaugurated, which one of us is going to be the vice president? Which one of us is going to be the the chief of staff? Which one of us is going to be the secretary of state? We know he's going to rule and reign forever and ever, and we want to be part of this. And now Jesus is talking about betrayal. See, it's not the first time Jesus had told him over and over again, my kingdom is not of this world. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. I'm going to be rejected. And it all sailed right over their heads. Why? Not because of lack of comprehension mentally, but because they didn't want to believe it. They had no category in their mind for a suffering Messiah. See, in their mind, the Messiah is the king. That's what Christ means. King, the anointed one. How can the king suffer? How could the king be rejected? How could he be betrayed? If he's betrayed... If he's crucified, well, how can he be our king? It just doesn't make any sense. 
Have you ever been misunderstood? Have you ever gone out of your way to try to be nice to someone only to have that person interpret your words and your actions as an attack against them? Which is literally the exact opposite of what you were trying to do. That's fun, isn't it? Have you ever tried to help someone only to have them believe that you were trying to hurt someone? It's happened to me. It's the worst. Have you ever said something like, hey man, that looks great on you. And the person responds, so what are you saying then? My other clothes don't look great on me? You know, because uh, that seems like what you're saying. No, 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 I'm not saying that at all. It happened to Jesus. Misunderstood. He's trying to tell them the gospel. He's trying to show them the beauty of his grace. And it sailed right over their heads. Last thing, Jesus was attacked. Verse 27, then after Judas Iscariot had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, why would I use the word attacked? How was Jesus attacked? Well, he was attacked by Satan. Yes, I mean, it was Judas Iscariot who betrayed Jesus, but underneath that betrayal was Satan, who used Judas Iscariot in order to wage spiritual warfare against Jesus. Now, we don't talk about that enough, and by we, I mean me, so mea culpa, but oftentimes the problems we experience in life are a direct result of spiritual attacks. Satan is real. He's not a metaphor or or a symbol. He is a real spiritual being. The Bible tells us that he roams around like a roaring lion searching for someone to devour. Now, sometimes when we have problems in life, there are scientific, naturalistic, psychological reasons for the problems we face. You know, hormone imbalances and diet and exercise, or maybe we're not sleeping enough, or there's some problem with medication. But sometimes, and I think more often than we acknowledge, we feel the way we feel because we're under spiritual attack. Sometimes God uses people, even our friends, even our spouses, even our parents, people we love, people we trust, people like Judas Iscariot to launch those attacks. Now, if that's ever happened to you, you are not alone. It happened to Jesus. Jesus was attacked by Satan. He walked down into our darkness, the darkness of our broken and sinful world. Now, at this point in the sermon, you might be asking yourself, that's a lot of darkness, Pastor Joel. I thought you were trying to convince me that uh, this is true, and that it's good, and that I should be a Christian too. Where's the love? Where's the light? Where's the joy? Well, if that's you, here's the good news. Jesus endured the darkness. He stepped down into the darkness. He was betrayed. He was misunderstood. He was attacked so that we could step up into his glorious light. Jesus didn't suffer so that we could look at him and say, well, I guess it could be worse. He suffered for very specific reasons. Two of those reasons are mentioned here in the text. He suffered first 
to restore our relationship with God, and he suffered to restore our relationships with other people. Lost people in the world and found people in the church. How does the darkness Jesus experienced restore our relationship with God? Well, look at verse 18. He writes, I am not, Jesus says, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place so that when it does take place, you might believe that I am he. Do you hear what Jesus is doing? He's contextualizing the darkness. He's saying all of these things, Judas's betrayal, Peter's denial, the cross, the crucifixion, all these things have to be understood in light of my divine plan. He's telling the apostles this in advance so that they might believe and that we might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, our Savior. That all of these things that happened to Jesus were not an accident of history, but they were a direct fulfillment of God's word. A direct fulfillment of God's plan to rescue a people for himself. To bring us out of darkness into the light. To bring us out of the wilderness and into his promised land, the new Jerusalem, which is inherited by everyone who believes He's saying these things are happening to fulfill the scriptures. These things are happening so that I could fulfill my role as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In the Garden of Eden, it was Jesus who was betrayed by Adam and Eve. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus will be betrayed by Judas Iscariot. The first betrayal brought death into the world. The second betrayal brings life into the world. See, if we don't understand the darkness in light of the bigger story of redemption, we'll look at what happened to Jesus and we'll say, what a terrible thing. But if we do understand what happened to Jesus in light of the story of redemption, we will look at what happened to Jesus, all of the darkness and all the betrayal and all the misunderstanding and all of the attacks and all of the pain, and we'll say, what a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing because Jesus was rejected so that we might be accepted. He died so that we might live He walked down into the darkness of sin and misery so we could experience the blinding glory of a restored relationship with God. Verse 31. When Judas Iscariot had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. We have to hear the word glory with Old Testament ears. 
When Jesus is talking about the glory of God, he's talking about the blinding light that was shining from Mount Sinai when Moses was so lit up by the glory of God that people couldn't look at him. He was reflecting the glory of God, and it was blinding to their eyes. The glory is the Shekinah glory of God that led the Israelites out of Egypt and into the promised land. It's the blinding glory of God that gives light to the new Jerusalem in heaven. Revelation 22.5, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Do you hear it? See, here we see Jesus walking into the darkness, and John says, and it was night. There, forgiven and restored, we will walk into the light and brightness of, of God's glory. As John, the same Apostle John, writes, and night will be no more. We cannot go where Jesus was going. We cannot go to the cross. We cannot survive the wrath of God against our sin. The darkness is too thick. The pain and the agony too real. But because Jesus went there in our place, we can go where Jesus came from. We can go to heaven. We can go to the promised land. We can walk into the light of God's love. We can walk into the light of God's glory and grace. So the first thing is a restored relationship with God. Very important. The most important thing. The second is this, and we'll close with this. The second is a restored relationship with one another. Verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, Jesus says, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, so also you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The darkness tears us apart. The light brings us together. The darkness looks like hatred. The light looks like love. There is so much darkness in the world. There's so much division and and hatred. And many of us wonder, what's the answer? What's the answer to all the darkness in this world that we see all around us? Jesus tells us that we have to fight the darkness with light. We have to fight hatred with love. We have to fight loneliness and isolation with fellowship and community. The light of Jesus, which looks a lot like the love of Jesus, gives us hope. He's our only hope. He's our hope for us, but he's also the hope for the whole world. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. In this world, there is light and darkness, ups and downs. There are good days and bad days and good years and bad years. Sometimes we are filled with great sorrow, almost overwhelming sorrow. And at other times, we are filled with otherworldly joy. 
the beauty of the good news, the beauty of Jesus, the beauty of the gospel is that he stepped down into our darkness that we might step up into the light of his salvation. On the cross, Jesus absorbed our darkness. He absorbed our sin so that anyone and everyone who believes in him might experience the light of his love. That is our hope. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the light of your love, the light of your salvation, the light of the glory of Jesus. We thank you that in one of the darkest moments in all of history, nothing could extinguish your light. Nothing could dampen the power of your glory. Not even Judas, not even us, when we betray you because of our sin. We thank you, Lord, that in the midst of all of this, you were still inviting even Judas to come back home. You were still giving him opportunities to repent and believe. I pray, Lord God, that you would forgive our sins and speak to us once again through your Spirit that we might walk boldly and humbly into the light of your salvation. Hear our prayer, for we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.